Chapter One, Part One of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Nine Score Mystery, Part One. Well, you know, some say she is the daughter of a duke, others that she was born in the gutter. And that the handle has been soldered onto her name in order to give her style and influence. I could say a lot, of course, but my lips are sealed, as the poets say. All through her successful career at the yard, she honored me with her friendship and confidence. But when she took me in partnership, as it were, she made me promise that I would never breathe a word of her private life, and this I swore on my Bible oath wish I may die, and all the rest of it. Yes, we always called her my lady, from the moment that she was put at the head of our section, and the chief called her Lady Molly in our presence. We of the female department are dreadfully snubbed by the men, though don't tell me that women have not ten times as much intuition as the blundering and sterner sex. My firm belief is that we shouldn't have half so much undetected crimes if some of the so called mysteries were put to the test of feminine investigation. Do you suppose for a moment, for instance, that the truth about that extraordinary case at nine score would ever have come to light if the men alone had had the handling of it? Would any man have taken so bold a risk as Lady Molly did when, ah, but I am anticipating? Let me go back to that memorable morning when she came into my room in a wild state of agitation. The chief says I may go down to nine score if I like Mary, she said in a voice all a quiver with excitement. You! I ejaculated. What for? What for? What for? she repeated eagerly. Mary, don't you understand? It is the chance I have been waiting for. The chance of a lifetime? They are all desperate about the case up at the yard. The public is furious, and columns of sarcastic letters appear in the daily press. None of our men know what to do. They are at their wits' end. And so this morning I went to the chief. Yes? I queried eagerly, for she had suddenly ceased speaking. Well, never mind now how I did it. I will tell you all about it on the way, for we have just got time to catch the eleven a.m. down to Canterbury. The chief says I may go, and that I may take whom I like with me. He suggested one of the men, but somehow I feel that this is woman's work, and I'd rather have you, Mary, than any one. We will go over the preliminaries of the case together in the train, as I don't suppose that you have gotten them at your fingers' ends yet, and you have only just got time to put a few things together. And meet me at Charing Cross Booking Office in time for that eleven a.m. sharp. She was off before I could ask her any more questions, and anyhow, I was too flabbergasted to say much. A murder case in the hands of the female department? Such a thing had been unheard of until now, but I was all excitement too, and you may be sure I was at the station in good time. Fortunately, Lady Molly and I had a carriage to ourselves. It was a non stop run to Canterbury, so we had plenty of time before us. And I was longing to know all about this case, you bet, since I was to have the honor of helping Lady Molly in it. The murder of Mary Nichols had actually been committed at Ash Court, a fine old mansion which stands in the village of Ninescore. The court is surrounded by magnificently timbered grounds, the most fascinating portion of which is an island in the midst of a small pond, which is spanned by a tiny rustic bridge. The island is called the Wilderness. And it is at the furthermost end of the grounds, out of sight and earshot of the mansion itself. It was in this charming spot, on the edge of the pond, 
that the body of a girl was found on the 5th of February last. I will spare you the horrible details of this gruesome discovery. Suffice it to say for the present that the unfortunate woman was lying on her face with the lower portion of her body on the small grass-covered embankment, and her head, arms, and shoulders sunk in the slime of the stagnant water just below. It was Timothy Coleman, one of the undergardeners at Ash Court, who first made this appalling discovery. He had crossed the rustic bridge and traversed the little island in its entirety when he noticed something blue lying half in and half out of the water beyond. Timothy is a stolid, unemotional kind of yokel, and once having ascertained that the object was a woman's body in a blue dress with white facings, he quietly stooped and tried to lift it out of the mud. But here even his stolidity gave way at the terrible sight which was revealed before him. That the woman, whoever she might be, had been brutally murdered was obvious, her dress in front being stained with blood. But what was so awful, that it even turned old Timothy sick with horror, was that, owing to the head, arms, and shoulders having apparently been in the slime for some time, they were in an advanced state of decomposition. Well, whatever was necessary was immediately done, of course. Coleman went to get assistance from the lodge, and soon the police were on the scene and had removed the unfortunate victim's remains to the small local police station. Nine Score is a sleepy, out-of-the-way village, situated some seven miles from Canterbury and four from Sandwich. Soon everyone in the place had heard that a terrible murder had been committed in the village, and all the details were already freely discussed at the Green Man. To begin with, everyone said that though the body itself might be practically unrecognizable, the bright blue serge dress with the white facings was unmistakable, as were the pearl and ruby ring and the red leather purse found by Inspector Measures close to the murdered woman's hand. Within two hours of Timothy Coleman's gruesome find, the identity of the unfortunate victim was firmly established as that of Mary Nichols, who lived with her sister Susan at two Elm Cottages in Ninescore Lane, almost opposite Ash Court. It was also known that when the police called at that address, they found the place locked and apparently uninhabited. Mrs. Hooker, who lived at number one next door, explained to Inspector Measures that Susan and Mary Nichols had left home about a fortnight ago and that she had not seen them since. "'It'll be a fortnight tomorrow,' she said. "'I was just inside my own front door a-callin' to the cat to come in. "'It was past seven o'clock, and as dark a night as you ever did see. "'You could hardly see your end before your eyes, "'and there was a nasty damn drizzle comin' from everywhere. "'Susan and Mary came out of their cottage. "'I couldn't rightly see Susan, but I heard Mary's voice quite distinct. "'She says, "'We'll have to hurry,' she says. "'I, thinkin' they might be goin' to do some shoppin' in the village, "'calls out to them that I just heard the church clock strike seven and that being Thursday, and early closing, they'd find all the shops shut at nine score. But they took no notice, and walked off towards the village, and that's the last I ever see of them, too. Further questioning among the village folk brought forth many curious details. It seems that Mary Nichols was a very flighty young woman, about whom there had already been quite a good deal of scandal, whilst Susan, on the other hand, who was very sober and steady in her conduct, had chafed considerably under her younger sister's questionable reputation, and, according to Mrs. Hooker, many were the bitter quarrels which occurred between the two girls. These quarrels, it seems, had been especially violent within the last year, whenever Mr. Lionel Lydgate called at the cottage. He was a London gentleman, it appears, a young man about town, it afterwards transpired, but he frequently stayed at Canterbury, where he had some friends, 
and on those occasions he would come over to Ninescore in his smart dog-cart and take Mary out for drives. Mr. Lydgate is brother to Lord Edbrook, the multimillionaire, who was the recipient of birthday honors last year. His lordship resides at Edbrook Castle, but he and his brother Lionel had rented Ashcourt once or twice, as both were keen golfers, and sandwich links are very close by. Lord Edbrook, I may add, is a married man. Mr. Lionel Lydgate, on the other hand, is just engaged to Miss Marbury, daughter of one of the canons of Canterbury. No wonder, therefore, that Susan Nicholls strongly objected to her sister's name being still coupled with that of a young man far above her in station, who, moreover, was about to marry a young lady in his own rank of life. But Mary seemed not to care. She was a young woman who only liked fun and pleasure, and she shrugged her shoulders at public opinion, even though there were ugly rumors and at the parentage of a little baby girl whom she herself has placed under the care of Mrs. Williams, a widow who lived in a somewhat isolated cottage on the Canterbury Road. Mary had told Mrs. Williams that the father of the child, who was her own brother, had died very suddenly, leaving the little one on her and Susan's hands, and, as they couldn't look after it properly, they wished Mrs. Williams to have charge of it. To this the latter readily agreed. The sum for the keep of the infant was decided upon, and thereafter Mary Nichols had come every week to see the little girl, and always brought the money with her. Inspector Measures called on Mrs. Williams, and certainly the worthy widow had a very startling sequel to relate to the above story. "'A fortnight to-morrow,' explained Mrs. Williams to the inspector, "'a little after seven o'clock. Mary Nichols come a-running into my cottage. It was an awful night, pitch dark in a nasty drizzle. Mary says to me she's in a great hurry. She's gone up to London by a train from Canterbury, and wants to say good-bye to the child. She seemed terribly excited, and her clothes were very wet. I brings baby to her, and she kisses it rather wild-like, and says to me, "'You'll take good care of her, Mrs. Williams,' she says. "'I may be gone some time.' Then she puts the baby down, and gives me two pounds, the child's keep for eight weeks. After which, it appears, Mary once more said good-bye, and ran out of the cottage, Mrs. Williams going as far as the front door with her. The night was very dark, and she couldn't see if Mary was alone or not, until presently she heard her voice saying tearfully, "'I had to kiss baby.' Then the voice died out in the distance. "'On the way to Canterbury,' Mrs. Williams said most emphatically. So far, you see, Inspector Measures was able to fix the departure of the two sisters' Nichols from Ninescore on the night of January 23rd. Obviously, they left their cottage about seven, went to Mrs. Williams, where Susan remained outside, while Mary went in to say good-bye to the child. After that, all traces of them seemed to have vanished. Whether they did go to Canterbury, and caught the last-up train, at what station they alighted, or when poor Mary came back, could not at present be discovered. According to the medical officer, the unfortunate girl must have been dead twelve or thirteen days at the very least, as, though the stagnant water may have accelerated decomposition, the head could not have gotten to such an advanced state much under a fortnight. At Canterbury Station, neither the booking clerk nor the porters could throw any light upon the subject. Canterbury West is a busy station, and scores of passengers buy tickets and go through the barriers every day. It was impossible, therefore, to give any positive information about two young women who may or may not have traveled by the last-up train on Saturday, January 23rd, that is, a fortnight before. One thing only was certain— whether Susan went to Canterbury and traveled by that up-train or not, alone or with her sister, Mary had undoubtedly come back to Ninescore, either the same night or the following day, 
since Timothy Coleman found her half-decomposed remains in the grounds of Ash Court a fortnight later. Had she come back to meet her lover, or what? And where was Susan now? From the first, therefore, you see, there was a great element of mystery about the whole case, and it was only natural that the local police should feel that, unless something more definite came out at the inquest, they would like to have the assistance of some of the fellows at the yard. So the preliminary notes were sent up to London, and some of them drifted into our hands. Lady Molly was deeply interested in it from the first, and my firm belief is that she simply worried the chief into allowing her to go down to Ninescore and see what she could do. End of Part 1 of the Ninescore Mystery